Yeah, I'm thinking about fully investing in all of the the home office things for season two of COVID. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I need an actually comfortable chair and a stand-up desk and good headset. Just all the all the things. I thought we were on season three. Whatever season we're on, it's really jumping the shark this year. The writers, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the writers have run out of ideas. Yeah. Is Fonzie going to show up? <laughs> that would be something. Hey, speaking of which, uh, I guess welcome to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan. I'm joined by Dustin and Ellie as usual. And we got a special guest, Andrea. Hey, Andrea. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. And speaking of COVID, I just came back from the, the rapid test and I'm negative. But I do have a nasty, nasty cold right now. I've had it since uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, my kid had a close contact for someone in school. So we had to get everyone tested this morning, see if we're okay. And we are, thankfully. Um, but my cold really took a nosedive last night. I don't know if anyone in Bismarck noticed it, but about around nine o'clock last night, <clears throat> the smoke started rolling in. Yes. And uh, it was thick. It was like uh, it was like there was a fire in my neighborhood kind of thickness. And uh, so, and it smelled and it was awful. So we closed all the windows. And then I woke up this morning and uh, checked the air quality in <clears throat> Bismarck as of an hour ago, at least. Bismarck has the worst air quality in the nation currently. So we did it, folks. We're number one. And apparently it's uh, a, a wildfire from Canada. And the way the winds work, it just walk, came down the, the Missouri Valley, I guess, uh, the River Valley, and stuck in Bismarck, of all places. And it was super thick last night. It was crazy. It was hurt, burning my eyes. It was nasty. So, uh, yeah, a reminder that uh, the wildfire season is still going. Yeah, our, our AQI right now is 205. And I always go to Los Angeles to put that in perspective. And Los Angeles is 44. Well, see, <laughs> it's a good day to be in LA, I guess. Yeah. They got the ocean. It's true. <laughs> and sunshine. It's actually, it's pretty nice today. If, if you could go outside, it'd be nice. Yeah. To it, it's just outside. over. I, I'm glad it's not any warmer than it is right now because it would be horrendous. Exactly. Well, that was my check-in. Um, Dustin, Ellie, it's been a couple weeks since we connected. Andrea, this is the moment of the call uh, of the podcast where we usually uh, have a kind of a check-in thought. My check-in thought was, damn, it's smoky. Uh, how's you guys' week been going? Well, mine's been fine. I've uh, been busy uh, with with local Bismarck stuff and, and getting ready next week to uh, fill in for Jay Thomas out in Fargo on his radio show. Got a few people lined up, waiting on a few more to confirm, and uh, yeah, several meetings and, and travel. So that's that's kind of what is going on around here. I was just um, thinking about how it's really not so bad over here in Mandan in terms of the smoke. And so last night I was spending time with a friend in Bismarck in her home, and I came out. Uh, actually, my husband was giving me a ride. I came outside, hopped in the car with him. Um, I thought it was foggy. It didn't register that that was smoke, actually. Right. So uh, 
we drive home and it's just not like that here and it's mostly fine right now so it is really interesting how the river can just sort of be a barrier sometimes between these two parts of the community it's just kind of wild like i i honestly am hearing you talk about that and i'm like whoa i'm right now on my front porch just trying to figure out i'm looking around i'm like i'm smelling i'm like it's really not so bad over here so that's really uh, i'm sorry to hear that that it's so uh intense over there gosh i just didn't even realize it um i think my week has been uh interesting although i think Dustin's week's a little more interesting than he let on. That's just my opinion. But, um, you know, the letter to the editor is pretty cool. So we should talk about that if folks don't okay. mind. But yeah. but I, I would just say that on Friday, I did give a workshop on writing for uh, a general audience to some graduate students at Florida International University. Um, awesome. And that was pretty cool. So that was like the most interesting part of my week, probably um, plugging along at work and uh, plugging along at parenting some more adventures in the uh neurodiversity department but it's good <laughs> but anyways yeah so let's talk about dustin's uh well i guess andrea could check in if she'd like to um and then at some point let's talk about dustin's letter to the editor uh yeah i, ca I can't wait to hear more from you guys considering i'm new to the space i i'm mostly here to listen but ryan uh the way that you started out just talking about the smoke uh, and Ellie, thank you for acknowledging the neurodiversity you're surrounded in because per Ryan's comments on just smoke in the air alone, my mind just went in 10,000 different directions uh, wanting to talk about uh, my recent work and research in treaty rights and how that impacts, uh, you know, the the good change to climate change <laughs> we're, we're looking for. Uh, the narrative of Canadian wildfires. Um, there's a lot to be said there. Um, and uh, I don't even know how to summarize my response to that because neurodiversity. So with that, <laughs> I will just hand it over. I, I'm happy to be here and happy to listen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Well, Dustin, you want to take it away? I didn't even realize you had a letter to the editor, so I'm at the opinion page of the Bismarck Tribune trying to figure out what, what your title is. It's the uh, letter, Expanded Coverage Key to Understanding Local Tax Issues. And uh, about a week and a half ago, the publisher of the Tribune had written his weekly column as, uh, it, it had the word bamboozle in it. And I like to use that word, bamboozle, boondoggle, those are my words. So whenever uh, somebody else is using them, it, it, it gets my attention. And uh, so uh, he was talking about how local government has jacked up property taxes and the mill rates went up six mills and all these different things. And, you know, my, my original version of this letter uh, was 1,024 words. <laughs> And uh, Amy Dalrymple is like, can you cut it in half? And she, she told me 500. And I said, oh, I got it to 583. Is that good enough? And she's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, I, my, my goal here was to say, you know, you're the publisher of the Tribune. Uh, here are the things that the Tribune has lacked in in the last, you know, several decades on, on coverage 
uh, yeah, they they report on meetings, but they don't have any sort of context to them. They don't follow up on what is going on. They don't follow the, the committee and the subcommittee meetings. Uh, and they don't explain, you know, how we got the policies that we got today and whether those were good to begin with. And, you know, he, he was talking about the mill levy increases because his taxes went up and, you know, it, it, it happens every year. Uh, Bismarck in the last two years has had to increase mills because uh, they were lagging in money for uh, uh, staff uh, salary increases and a few other things. The, the one thing that I didn't mention in the article was the fact that between 2006 and 2014 or 15, the city commission had dropped mills, I believe 14 mills. So the fact that we are going back up is a result of the fact that when they dropped those mills to kind of placate people and, and make it look like they were holding the line on spending, they were just setting up future commissions to have problems. And if you cut taxes, knowing that there are bills coming down the road uh, and you don't establish a alternative method for funding those, you're guaranteeing that taxes will have to increase in the future. And so part of cutting taxes is making sure that they don't have to go back up. So if you're only doing half the job, then you're really just doing a spin and, and kind of fooling the public in my view. So uh, basically I gave, him, I gave him and the paper and the public five areas where uh, I would like to see expanded coverage. And, and I, it didn't make it into the final cut, but it was in the thousand word version. I pointed out that back in 2006, when I came back from Iowa, from working for the Iowa GOP, the first job that I applied for was actually the political reporter job at the Bismarck Tribune. And uh, uh, at that point, I believe they were paying $24,000. So it was essentially a glorified internship. And that's the problem with a lot of local media and why you see these young, fresh out of college people coming through. They're here for maybe a year at the most. Uh, and then they leave because it's a, it's a stepping stone job and it doesn't pay that well. Uh, that, that applies for, for city uh, for, for newspaper and for TV, you know, in my time, I think Cape Fires probably had seven political reporters in 15 years. Well, you've got the, the uh, and, and one of those got fired because he was running down stories for me on the, the Dickinson State uh, uh, diploma mill scandal and was essentially uh, told by there, there, there's a whole backstory about how he was fired because of uh, then Chancellor Gatz going to KFIRE and, and saying, hey, you got to get rid of this guy because he's causing me trouble by asking questions. And they did. <laughs> and he's selling insurance now. But he was the only investigative reporter genuinely interested in doing like old school John Stossel, you know, undercover type stuff. And he got pushed out because he was working with me basically. Uh, but, you know, the, the paper will, will write a story about what happened at one, one meeting and then just leave it at that. And then they get all the letters yet or like the whole issue about the water rates in Bismarck is a prime example of where this is a problem. That 
the, the, the committee and the study for, for changing the water rates was going on for a year and a half prior to it happening. Nobody paid attention to it. It didn't get any reporting because water rates are a pretty boring subject until your water rates go up 500%. And the biggest problem with that is that the high users don't want to admit that they're the high users. And, uh, you know, Bismarck is, has not fully uh, taken advantage of state water commission money when it came to building the treatment plant on the river, the intake and the new treatment plant. Uh, th there were grants in, in some state money that they could have grabbed that they didn't. And so that's part of why those rates went up because you got to pay for it. So basically the, the crux of my uh, letter was to tell the uh, publisher of the Tribune how to do his job. It's pretty badass. I, I, I give you a fist bump if I was there, Dustin. Yeah, that's awesome. Because uh, yeah, that is, it's 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 rich that the the publisher complains about something that uh, he's decided not to cover. <laughs> it's like, what do you expect people to uh, to uh, get mad about if you don't ha give them the information that would uh, you know prime them to get a little upset? Right. And this is not just a Bismarck issue. This is all over. I mean, the 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 fact is, people always think that local media has a liberal bias because national media does that's not true i always tell people most local reporters are just not paid enough to care and they're not experienced enough to know what matters you know any more than a regular person would be uh, knowing what should matter and what to pay attention to so um you know you can't expect some kid out of college making 30 grand a year uh to to you know be doing bob woodward level uh journalism <laughs> now ellie it sounded like you were pretty excited by this uh letter to the editor um and you have a, a gig side gig with uh, the tribune any thoughts on um dustin kicking the hornet's nest a little bit <laughs> um well hmm. how do i articulate my reaction to it um <laughs> You know, it like I, I do see myself as among the intended audience, and I mean, he, you know, I mean, the entire readership is the audience, obviously, but, but I mean, basically, the request is to cover more of this stuff, you know, in reporting, also in columns, you know, so, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be interested in something like that, uh, just because I'm like, oh, like this person, I mean, I have, it's like, I happen to know this person, but either way, this person is inviting a certain kind of reflection and approach. And, you know, I don't know if my role is to be the best at that, but it's just something I wanted to attend to and think about. Um, I think that it illustrates a lot of, there's a lot of just, difficulty in getting our institutions to really support citizens paying attention and actually understanding how policy on its consequences unfold or how, the, how they unfold um it's really challenging but like at least we should try like i'm just interested in like the call to like cover things with more seriousness and more depth and to um invite a reprioritization of like the newspaper to really make room for that kind of uh, reporting and, and insight. And 
it does imply, you know, a different, maybe a different budget structure. I mean, there's a lot of implications there. Um, I think that it is really difficult to get the public engaged on just any old topic. And that's not going to change easily. But it would be nice if there was like a, a nice track record or a bunch of breadcrumbs when the public finally starts to pay attention to something. So as some new issue emerges, there should be more, it should be the fact that it's not actually new, it's just being paid attention to, paid attention to suddenly can be kind of easy to understand if there is a track record of coverage. I just, I just think we have a lot of room to grow in terms of citizens understanding how local government or any government for that matter actually works and how um, it might be, there are ways to get involved you may not be aware of because you're just not informed of these things. I see it as, you know, it's, it's civic education in part and I'm always in favor of that. I mean, if people could be more just civically educated there's a lot of like really old, annoying arguments we could stop having. I mean, we, you know, when we're trying to like engage and activate our fellow citizens and residents of North Dakota, sometimes you have to get past like literal false beliefs first before you can even get to like, you know, forget about opinion. You can't even get just facts, right? And I think laying the groundwork work for like more understanding of processes that are actually happening, like the way decisions are made in these contexts, I just think it's good, and and I, I thought it was interesting that it was allowed to be such a long letter because yeah, it was like a column length letter, and so that made me when I noticed that somebody's getting to do something in the paper that deviates from the normative format, I know there might be more of a story behind it. So there's just a couple reasons why I wanted to um, talk about it. I've all all my letters. If you go back years, I've always been in the five to six hundred range, uh, mostly because I I do put a lot of factual content in it, and generally editors will um, will give you more space if you're using up space for facts. Uh, that that is a typical rule. I mean, the longest op-ed that I ever submitted was thirteen hundred to the. Uh, Grand Forks Herald, they had asked for it. It was on Obamacare. And uh, the funniest thing was after it ran, uh, Don Larson was still uh, in, in John Hoven's office. And he sent me an email and said, how in the world did you get 1300 words? I can't get that for the Senator. <laughs> I was like, well, he asked me to write it. So I think the, the rules are different when they come to you. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you, you've earned the allowances. You know, a lot of people, the, the word limits are more enforced with them. So I guess you've, mm -hmm. <laughs> you've earned it. Well, it seems to me the, the irony of, of not covering this particular issue is that I feel like in talking to people, property taxes and bitching about property taxes and not understanding property taxes is a, an issue that uh, almost everyone agrees on uh, that is a problem. Like I've never heard someone not bitch about property tax. Once you become a homeowner, you start bitching about it. It becomes automatic, no matter where you lie on the ideological spectrum. So it would seem, as a as a publisher of a paper, that this would be a, a low hanging fruit of things like, hey, we can get people excited about this. Everyone's pissed off all the time about this issue. Hmm. Maybe they'll read about these um, seemingly boring things because they, of this animus they have. 
Um, and it's one of those few where we or Democrats and Republicans typically do come together and be like, yeah, this is kind of messed up. Why are we doing it like this? And until you understand it, um, and you know, that's part of the paper that um, has a civic function is the educational purpose of educating citizens about that minutia. And uh, if you already have the animus against it, you're kind of primed to get excited about learning about the minutia, I think. So it's it's kind of low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. I, I think Dustin's points about um, you know the pay structure and the way the reporters cycle in and out of, of the system here in North Dakota doesn't allow that institutional knowledge to carry um, any weight in the coverage. Uh, it's more kind of a blow-by-blow blow kind of, let me get my uh, columns in so I can get out of North Dakota kind of thing. And uh, the in- institutional or kind of multi- you're thinking that this issue requires is not present in the reporters just because of the way that the, they're hired and, and and move on quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely there's a turnover issue, and that that is obviously the best argument against term limits as well. Is that you know that the folks that if you got too much turnover, you don't have any people that understand how the system works, which is where we kind of are already because we do have significant amount of turnover on like tax committee at the legislative level in that the uh 14 of the 15 people on the uh, house tax committee have not been there as long as i've been lobbying so uh there, there is a lack of lack of institutional knowledge about how these things work but everybody wants everybody wants to upend and change the system and you know i have my plans to do that too but <laughs> You've got to know how the system got to be, why it is that way before you can fix it. And and there's not enough people that want to learn the, the backstory uh, to to figure out, you know, what was tried in the past and didn't work before trying to do that again. You know, there's a lot of a lot of history, both in North Dakota and in other states about doing things a certain way. And some of them work, some of them don't. Yeah, it seems like it's, it takes both, Dustin. It takes the experience to understand where we've done and the things we've tried and, and the, the progression of ideas and, and, and the way the political will has moved in and out of the issue. But it also takes um, newbies to get uh, real frustrated and uh, try to think outside of the box. Sometimes the the problem is that we have too many people that are um, full of institutional knowledge and that holds them back. And it looks like I've, I've lost my connection again. No, we're here, and your your audio went way up and then way down. Yeah, you know, I, I had previously lost my dongle, and and I found it, so I'm I'm back in the headphones, mm. but um, they're cutting in and out. I don't know oh. what's going on. Apologize for that, podcast listeners. Um, well, Dustin, I wanted to check in. I know you've been doing, you've got a radio hosting gig coming up, and uh, you've been doing some commentary public commentary on what's going on in fargo i've only got tangential knowledge of what's going on in fargo um and i'd love if you give us a primer on on the school board and the and the vaccination controversy if if i'm even understanding that part correctly it is uh so the fargo school recall was a a proxy war for the vaccine and mask war uh and the uh the folks that were collecting signatures, they barely got enough to qualify if all of their packets would have been good. Uh, so long story short, they got disqualified because they had a whole bunch of circulators that did things wrong. 
And all of those packets were, were rejected. Basically, 30% of their packets were rejected because of circulator error. Wow. Uh, and and uh, so I, I got access to the packets of one of the targets in Fargo, went through them. There was 52 packets in what I had received. And in about two and a half, three hours, I went through uh, and looked at them and, and came to the conclusion that maybe the school was a little bit too strict on about uh, a third of the third that got tossed. But even if those would have been let in, they would have still been short by 700 signatures, essentially. Uh, so <clears throat> the, the big takeaway that people are finally understanding is that the uh, entity that is being recalled should not be in charge of the recall uh, school. You know, in this case, the school business manager was the one in charge of uh, verifying and, and, and booting the, uh, the petitions. And that's how the state law is. Whatever entity is being recalled, they're in charge of the recall uh, in Bismarck. When, uh, the recall folks were trying to get rid of my seminary in 2017. Uh, Keith Hunky, the city administrator, was the one in charge of verifying and rejecting a bunch of signatures because Charles Tuttle decided that he was going to pretend to be in a Bismarck resident when everybody in the state knows he lives in Minot. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, the, the, the bigger reform that I think that we're going to have some momentum on is if it's a local city parks or school recall, the county commissioner should, or the county auditor should be in charge of that. If it's a county level issue, then that should get kicked up to the secretary of state, basically. And so that there's a little bit of disconnection between who's running the recall, who's, who's the unbiased uh, enforcer of the recall and, and who is actually there because the school business manager is hired and fired by the school board so you know at the end of the day the business manager works for the people that they're recalling it doesn't even make any sense yep it's one of those um the the appearance of a conflict of interest that you need to, to get out uh move remove when you can and so that's a great i think that's a great fix dustin and, it, and it's not it, that it's not even that there's any suspicion that they did something wrong that position just shouldn't have that responsibility. It's not right. fair to them to put them in that position. It does. It puts them in a bad position. So I, I like thinking about this in line with Dustin, the phrase you've used recently, um, protecting petitioning rights. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if it would be a fruitful project like to, you know, it, I think, I think protecting petitioning rights is not a super obvious phrase for a lot of people just yet, but when they hear about it, they're like, oh yeah, I'm totally into that. And so I think uh, a way to make the phrase more known and for a way that people can think about things, maybe projects that rely on the idea might be useful, not just in and of themselves, but in terms of structuring like the cultural conversation around a thing. And like, I wonder if like, it would be kind of interesting to start generating this public discussion about like a measure to protect the petitioning process. And like, that's one of the stipulations of the measure. Like we figure out 
you know, okay, let's say, how would we change this in law? Like, how could you make it, like, what would you change to make it like that there has to be an independent, uh, you know, recall runner or whatever, you know, I don't know if it should be at what level of government it should be, because I do think we don't want to be unrealistic and like, you know, I think it could be complicated in some rural communities due to lack of resources. So we don't have to think about that. But anyways, to me, it just seemed like that could be an interesting idea to put out there to help frame an example of a petition rights issue and get people into that way of thinking. And also, um, and I think it would be really cr critical too to help people understand that uh, it's it's not ideological. It, everyone benefits from the rights being protected. Um, and we're really just buffering the people against the motivations of people who have conflicts of interest, which could be, you know, any, any political leaning whatsoever, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's something there. Uh, it, it, fixing it would just be scratching out the part of the state statute that puts those entities in charge of their own recalls and kicking it up a level. And, you know, it there's going to be a lot of a lot more crossing out than replacing, but that's fine. Uh, I think that uh, I think that you'd actually end up with, especially the city uh, park and school district people actually supporting it because I don't think that they really want to be in this position. I know Keith Hunky didn't like being in that position. He he act I I believe he asked the county uh, auditor whether he could take over and it, the state law didn't even allow for it and and so uh you know that certainly i think uh you know they're just uncomfortable in it and and even if they're not doing anything wrong there's going to be accusations that they are so you know why put them in that position that's a really interesting point Andrea, do you still live in Fargo? I do, yeah. This particular issue I have not paid much attention to uh, because I don't I don't have kids and so I, I don't pay a lot of attention to the to the school board, but I'm familiar with it. My the the kind of theme that I'm seeing a lot, um, it sort of seems to be a playbook uh, that's being used across the country right now is recalling people at every um, level of, of government as like sort of a form of, of coup. Like, so the largest scale one was um, the recall effort for governor of the state of California, but they did that all throughout California. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a scene that I'm seeing and I'm also seeing a lot of reactionary um, people who want to start limiting um, our ability to recall elected officials. And I, I do think it's important to preserve that um, capability, um, but look more so at, um, you know, how people are getting elected in the in the first place and things like that. So does anyone know, uh, I suppose, Dustin, you probably understand the issue. Um, what's what's the beef? They don't, uh, <laughs> what's their what's their issue that they want to recall everybody uh, because of is it, are they mandating masks in school and they don't like that? Or I'm just out of the out of the loop on this one. That, that is part of it. Um, I think 
if you remember for, for several years, the big fight was over common core and masks and vaccines and mandates and all these things replaced common core as the boogeyman essentially. Okay. And, and so they, they are doubling down on, on the animosity there. I mean, the, the number of people that were involved in the Common Core fight was probably one twentieth of the people involved in the mask and vaccine fight. So this really kicked things up a notch. And uh, and so, uh, you know, they, they've, they've just decided that this is going to be the thing and they're going to go after everybody on on policy issues. Uh, I I'm not a fan of using recall for policy issues. I mean, there, I guess there, there could be a situation where it would be appropriate, but um, generally speaking, recall is for corruptive type activities, you know, being a belligerent drunk in public. You know, th- th- we, we have elected officials that could be subject to recall using the belligerent drunk uh, <laughs> uh, usage that was historically used. We don't use it in those cases, though, which is funny. Yeah, let's get those belligerent drunks. We need the the happy drunks in office, not the belligerent ones. Right. And right. Is, is that because, like, you know, on policy, people should just get voted out? Is that basically the implication of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that if you use it on policy, then it becomes a... a it's going to become a two-way street of policy usage. And, and, you know, at that point, then I, I, I do think that th- this situation is a, a strong uh, argument in favor of term limits, because if they're, uh, if they're term limited, they, they can only be there so long. And so then there's less, uh, less uh, uh, motivation to do a recall. Gotcha. Well, it's interesting uh, as a as a parent here in Bismarck, uh, we got the opposite thing. Our school board just kind of uh, said, "Well, actually, that's not our responsibility to decide that stuff," and they they said it's somebody else's responsibility. They were basically kicking the can to to another agency that kicked the can to another one. It's like this game of uh, hot potato who wants responsibility. Nobody wants responsibility for that decision. So we're just not going to make it. We'll see what happens. And uh, so this week when the we got the notice, it came right, right after school ended on Friday, a little text message, check your email, important notice. And, uh, and it's, someone's got COVID in the, in the classroom. But that's all they tell you. They're, they're, <laughs> no details. Uh, they don't say whether you should be considered a close contact or not. Uh, they don't tell you what you should do. They're just like, yeah, by the way, someone's out sick with COVID. Good luck. See you on Monday, kind of. And uh, and that's their that's been their policy, kind of this like hands off. We'll see what happens. You know, they they got the uh, the COVID tracker on their website, but it's very hard to find. And uh, and and you're not sure what they're tracking exactly. I think it's when people call them and be like, yeah, we got COVID, but they're they're doing no uh, contact tracing. They're doing. Um, you know, any backward or forward tracing to understand the way it's spreading in the schools. They're like, we don't want to know that kind of stuff, I guess, or we don't have the staff to, to dedicate to figure it out, that kind of stuff. So they're just like, we'll see what happens, shrug emoji. And uh, and that's where we're at. So it's a, it's a different thing. Um, I, I would personally like to see the kids being masked in, in grade school uh, until they're vaccine eligible. Uh, it seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, 
because uh, uh, it's going through the schools and uh, that's what it's going to do. So, uh, I mean, I'm kind of over it at this point because we live in Bismarck, North Dakota, and that's kind of the way it's going to be uh, at this point in history. But uh, it's way, way different than the Fargo um, the Fargo dynamic, which I and I do support. Um, you know, I like the uh, the uh, civic activity of recall. I, I like people getting involved in politics and more aware of what what's going on. I think that's in general helpful for society. So I do support their right to uh, be wrong on this particular issue. And uh, I guess next time, check the rules on the on the recall petitioning a little closer. Yeah, and I definitely. wanted to. <laughs> always check the rules i mean that's the thing about the government you gotta you gotta be able to operate within the bureaucracy and because uh, they can they can throw you out on technicality um i wanted to spend a little bit of time on national politics here maybe 10 minutes um because we had a, a brief shutdown of the federal government that's always fun it's always weird and fun how they just be like oh we just decided it wasn't uh this thing wasn't passing now we all have to go home and uh and then it's fixed a couple hours later, and then we all get to go back to work. But they're having a big fight about the uh, infrastructure and reconciliation bill um, that the Democrats are putting all their hopes on for this um, two-year period and um, in the first two years of Biden's presidency as a way to build out infrastructure, which is always a need in a country as big as uh, the United States, and also address some um, systemic issues uh, around inequality and uh, environmental racism and all kinds of other things they're trying to put into the one bill. And uh, obviously the Republicans are just going to sit it out and try to obstruct. That's their thing. But the, it's the the interesting part is the inter-party Democrat um, squabbles that have erupted. Um, the progressives want more. The centrists don't want more, I guess. They want less. And uh, and everything's come down to two people that uh, you would, um, hopefully never pick to decide anything. Joe Manchin and Kristen, and I don't even know what's their last name. She's the um, senator from uh, Arizona. Cinema? Is that how you say it? I don't know. Cinema, like, I don't yeah. even know how like to say a movie theater. What yeah, was it? Like, 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 the mo like movies, cinema. Yeah, cinema. Um, which is which is interesting because now a whole bunch of writers are like using that to be like build this like intrigue around here. Like, ooh, she's so mysterious and doesn't play by the rules. <laughs> Her life is like the cinema, and it's just such <laughs> like like narcissism encouraging nonsense. Like, ugh. Anyway, I agree. Well, when, I, when, I agree. when you when you get elected to to replace john mccain you you probably assume that you have to do quite a bit of that and and so like you know it worked for him so it's gonna work for her right <laughs> well i mean yeah but it's like it's more that she seems kind of like bratty and aloof like i I, I don't think I think they're they're just taking whatever is weird about her and they're pretending that it's an intriguing like so like clever strategy uh, just because that's better copy I guess but it just like she just like leaves the room in the middle of someone talking and they're like oh how intriguing and it's like or maybe <laughs> she's just not taking this shit seriously I don't know anyway um, yeah lots of uh, lots of the progressives are uh, getting upset with her they they say um you know the thing is with working in good faith on a compromise of, of this 
the magnitude, you need to know what that person really wants. And apparently she's not telling anyone what she wants. She's kind of vague and noncommittal about what she wants. And um, which obviously there's a huge, <laughs> there's a huge deadline to get this stuff passed. And uh, so this lack of clarity from what she wants or why she won't uh, say what she wants is, uh, is really irritating a lot of people. And then Manchin, you know, to his credit is, has put out um, kind of a list of demands that he looks like he's going to get more carbon capture, um, a fuel neutral <laughs> uh, environmental package, which is hilarious, um, hilar hilar hilariously bad policy, because um, I think the the fuel neutral fuel neutral part of uh, a climate bill uh, doesn't make sense because we we know which fuels are causing climate change. Uh, but he looks like he's going to get that as well. But basically, his point. <laughs> His uh, his argument is that I'd love to uh, I'd love to address climate change. I love to fix climate change, but you know what, guys, this is too expensive, so we can't do it. And uh, it's hilarious that we're picking uh, the economic number uh, over you know like existential threat, which is climate change. The other thing is that the amount of money they want is a minuscule drop in the bucket at this point. It's It represents like 1.5% increase in the uh, federal government's budget over the last, next 10 years. So uh, the idea that we can't we, we can't pay for it, it's too expensive. It's not too expensive. It's just uh, that's what you're saying to get it to be a less of an expense. But it's not it's not a true thing. It's just uh, it's almost in, you know, it's in bad faith. But he, Mansion, to his credit, has actually put out things he wants, so you know, that you're able to work with him. And, um, and it wasn't him. I wish there was somebody. It, it always seems like whether it's him or Joe Lieberman or somebody like that. That's always kind of it becomes the, the this person becomes the linchpin, and you're like, how did that guy, of all the people, become the linchpin of this very very important decision we're about to make uh, collectively? This that's, is how the Senate was designed to work, too. This was the goal of the Senate. I mean, that that back in, in prior, especially prior to uh, to uh, the 17th Amendment being passed, back when state legislators were the ones that appointed it, the two senators from each state and the Senate was there to represent the legislatures, it was designed so that one state could gum up the works so that the federal government couldn't do anything that was in opposition to the, the uh, desires of any one state. Yeah, for sure. And there, he's definitely gumming it up. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I read some funny things. So in like, in like in North Dakota, um, I think we're all pretty, you know, if we pulled the uh, populace, they'd probably be like, yeah, coal's important to North Dakota. The coal jobs are important. Uh, so we're going to set policy. So, our, you know, our elected officials, I believe, are kind of, following the will of the people to an extent uh, when it comes to digging the coal and burning the coal forever. Um, but in, the interesting thing is in West Virginia, where Joe Manchin um, is from and represents, uh, they're actually public opinion is against coal. Uh, they, they've been exploited by the coal um, industry over, over time. They've lost a lot of jobs. It's ruined a lot of their environment. Uh, it's a different kind of coal mining in, in uh, West Virginia. So they actually, the public uh, opinion is against coal in West Virginia. So Manchin's going against public opinion um, in his stance here to save coal. And uh, it, it was reported this week that he's actually, a, um, he started a coal company back in the day and now his kid runs it and he's just uh, reaps in the profits as a, as a co-owner, silent owner. 
And uh, so he's making these choices for the entire country um, with a conflict of interest, of course, uh, and against the will of his people. So, yeah, um, it is designed to work this way. I wish it was designed uh, with a different person, a slightly different person in that catbird seat um, to make um, make this particular decision. Yeah, like his family has become pretty corrupt, it seems. I mean, I feel like uh, his daughter is up to something, too. Um, I think that that family is just joining the ranks of families who symbolize the corruption in our country like the families that were the same rules don't apply to them as apply to the rest of us and stuff like that so they're just he's just they're another one of those you know quasi corrupt dynasties or something um and and of course i don't really know cinema's situation as much but basically it is really weird to just act like people are mavericks when they're actually just corrupt and like they seem like they're interesting, but they're incoherent because they're being blown in the wind by corrupt motivations. Like, you know, you're not, you're not interesting public servant if you're changing your mind because it's really about like your, uh, your offspring's earnings, you know, it's anyways, I'm uh, not, I'm not enchanted with these people <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it, it's either corruption or incompetence, and and right. I would say that uh, looking at cinema, it's, it's probably closer to incompetence than anything. Yeah, that you know, that's like a, I think a tentative, reasonable hypothesis because I don't think there's quite as there's not really the evidence like that he has uh, that that it's corruption, and um, it's interesting though. I think I think she has a lot of opportunities to to get guidance from people, and um, I think that she really doesn't see herself as needing to learn anything. So she's not taking advantage of those opportunities. It seems like. Um, in any case, people got really excited about her election, and it's just kind of like now this, you know, want 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 kind of moment. Nobody nobody wrote out her wish list for her. <laughs> She yeah, doesn't have not? a you know, it, somebody wrote Joe Manchin, but nobody thought to go to her and, and give her her wish list. So she doesn't have one. Are we sure, though? I mean, like <laughs> I, they, someone probably asked her. I, I think people wouldn't be complaining about it unless I don't know, Ryan, you're paying more close attention to that. Um, I, I, I. Her her backstory is interesting in, to the extent that she was um, super liberal, um, progressive person who's progressively become less liberal and more centrist uh, as she's been elected to higher and higher office, um, which I guess is a thing that happens. It happens to North Dakota Democrats as well. Um, so, uh, but yeah, the idea like this is a great opportunity to put your stamp on the damn country. Why don't you uh, say what you want? You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, I think it's mind-boggling. So, in, in the extent uh, to the sen- the extent that it is mysterious, it is mysterious because every you know who would who who wouldn't kill for the opportunity to be in her position right now, and to and to make um, these you know being involved in these kind of discussions. But um, yeah, she's I, it's, she is a mystery because uh, she's just not saying what she wants, which is odd um, to say the least. Especially given everyone's desire to get this thing um, off the docket, you know, passed. The Democrats want to have something they can go back and uh, say, "Hey, we did something," and then you know have a record to run on. 
And uh, if the record is they squabbled, <laughs> squabbled away the opportunity, then they're going to get crushed. You know, at least um, put bet, put your best foot forward and uh, and see what the people decide um, in 2022. And uh, you know that's that's the you know that's the end game of this particular legislation is it has these long term climate ramifications. It also has these short term political ramifications, and uh, she's screwing them both up. For no the other option would be purpose. to write, write a infrastructure bill with infrastructure that everybody agrees on and stop fighting over the stuff that people don't agree on. You know, it would, it, it, the stuff that they're calling infrastructure. Yeah, it's infrastructure for bigger government, you know, but that's not an infrastructure that anybody's going to want, you know, as far as voting the other way. I mean, that we were supposed to have some grand bipartisan infrastructure bill under trump it was supposed to be the yeah. one thing that they were going to get done together and it, when it's... when he said well all i want to do is roads and bridges democrats walked away so you know what are you going to do I well mean, i mean <laughs> it's i think it's still infrastructure week if i'm not mistaken this is never ending infrastructure week. Year, year four of infrastructure week is that what it is? <laughs> it, it, it's like uh <clears throat> the month 18 of 14 days to flatten the curve <laughs> well i mean i think the, i mean I don't, I don't remember the details but i think it was always you know they're always pimping infrastructure week but there was never a plan put out by the white house so i think they no. and i don't know what you know the democrats had up their sleeves either i've been followed that but yeah it was a never-ending infrastructure week which again it, you know infrastructure property taxes these are the things that everyone you know gets irritable about you know, when the bridges are getting like a D minus from the engineering um, association across the country, D minus is pretty bad. And bridges kind of important when you want to get uh, across a river or whatever. But if you fix, if you fix things, then people don't have anything to be angry on, and you can't harness their anger anymore. So right. if, you, if you actually do the job that you're elected to do, you don't have to have a reason to be there anymore. I know. I mean, the idea of doing a job so well that you can leave, it's never crossed like, their minds. Leave the potholes there so people are crabby and then you can like channel their rage somehow. Um, I, I, I want to, I like the question that Dustin posed because I honestly, I don't have a great answer to it. And that's because I find some stuff about Washington very confusing. So like, yeah, okay, I, I could imagine myself in a situation in which I'm a, I'm a part of a legislative branch of some sort, and I have an opportunity to uh, join some conservative colleagues in making some things happen that I agree need to happen, like um, some roads and bridges and whatever, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then I have my progressive colleagues who are like, oh, but we really need to have these other things too. Um, and I'm like, oh, those do sound good, or at least like some of them sound good. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, upon finding that it's just dead on arrival, um, you know, I would be tempted to stick with, like, like at least try to support passing what people, what was good, and not um, throw out the good given just because I couldn't get everything that I also agreed with my colleagues on. And so there has to be a reason, like I, like I understand why, you know, maybe for now we compromise and that we're doing this really, um, this literal infrastructure in this way. And I have to do more work to persuade my colleagues to think of this other issue as just equally important infrastructure. Like why, why people have this method in Congress of my way or the highway. And I don't really understand it. Like in a really rudimentary way, I don't understand it. I don't understand why that's a better choice. I, I see it all the time with the um, 
folks in Congress just being like, if it doesn't include this, I'm not on board. And so I'm like, if an idea is really, really, really good, I have a hard time imagining keeping it hostage because something else I liked wasn't included. So I must be missing something. I genuinely don't understand the psychological motivations here. And maybe it's because I've never been in that situation and I don't really know what it's like, but there's gotta be more to the story that explains like, or maybe I just don't know what it's like to actually be one of those kinds of politicians because like, I'm not a like narcissist. Like, I, I don't know, maybe that <laughs> it's just a game to people. Like, I it don't is. know. It, it is a game. And the, this is the difference between a politician and a statesman. And, and a statesman is there to govern. A politician is there to keep the issues in their favor and to be able to say, I'm fighting for you. I've been fighting for you for 27 years. I'm going to keep on fighting for you. Okay, well, but what did you get done? Okay. <laughs> I don't care if you're fighting for me. I can hire a guy off the street to go fight for me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and I, what, I haven't followed, you know, I think part of it is a horse trading mentality, which is okay. Everyone agrees on some form of infrastructure, but um, no, not everyone agrees on uh, fighting climate change by de-incentivizing um, or taking away the subsidies to oil and gas and uh, giving greater ones to renewables um, or some of these other kind of climate uh, specific um, goals that are um, very important uh, in this period of time and this point in history and so i think I they're saying no, well no subsidies for anyone ever on anything and then at least we're not making things worse right you know that would that would be the, that's the compromise dustin that is the compromise um but it's the compromise they'll never get to because the subsidies are what get them elected and so this idea like yeah, okay well, let's make it fair and not subsidize anything and uh you know that is the compromise that um, you know the, you would reach if you were working in good faith. But they're trying to do a horse trade, which you know I, I support the horse trade because you know it is uh, an existential threat that we face, uh, and so we got to figure out a, one way or the other. We got to figure out a way to address it and address it in an actual way, and not a way that um, you know makes somebody rich in the process, which is how it seems like they're going to. Um, address it, which is uh, we'd love to address climate change, but only if someone gets rich or only if the people that are still rich continue to be rich and then, and then we can address it. And that's the, you know, that's the needle they're trying to thread, which but, is but sad. Here, here's why I would say that Democrats really don't want to do something on climate change, because if they did, they would have a standalone climate change bill that they would have this fight on amongst themselves and push through anyway. Right now, they're trying to ride it on to a bill that Republicans aren't going to support. So what is the point of having this fight on this bill when it's not going to add any support and you're going to be in the same place on, on a standalone clean bill? Uh, you might as well just pass the true infrastructure stuff, maybe get two or three Republicans on board, and then go have your fight on the climate stuff where you know you're not going to have any of the Republicans anyway. And you're going to be right. right back where you started, but you got what you wanted on the actual infrastructure. So the horse trading makes sense if you're getting something for your trade. But if you're not getting anything for your trade, then why are you going through the, the game? You know, it doesn't right. even make any sense. Well, and, I, and I is, agree. This you is make... a strategic failure on the Democrats part. Completely. Right. Exactly. You're, you're saying the tactic, it doesn't make any sense. And I agree. The tactic doesn't make sense. 
uh, and the reason they're going to that tactic is they can't agree amongst themselves, which is a longstanding democratic yeah. problem. Uh, so they're, they're tying it together because they want to manipulate the people within their own party to do what they want. And so, yes, it, you know, it would make so much more sense, Dustin, because if you actually just strip it all out and be like, this is the climate bill, and then you actually bring awareness to the climate, to the actual people of America and and – you know, that's the, you know, we talk about things that government can do to solve the climate change, but there's people, things that um, everyone has to do to solve the climate change. And so if you bring it awareness to it in the standalone bill, you actually can feed that end in the process of trying to feed the political end. But they don't, you're right, they don't want to do that because that, you know, will put too many people in spots they won't be able to wiggle out of. And so the, there's there's political cover in, in putting everything together, and there's the, the gamemanship and the horse trading in putting everything together. But I believe, I agree tactically. I think it's a mistake because we we have this huge um, consciousness shift that's required, along with the policy and political will that's required to, to solve climate change or um, remediate to a degree what we can. Um, and, and so if you can do something on a politically that solves the consciousness you know brings light these issues that we all need to kind of contemplate and, and, and grapple with to solve then you're actually you're able to solve something in the process you, know, you do something good in the process even if the bill doesn't get where you want it to go but they're afraid of that because they, they want to stay elected yeah they're afraid of that and and the question is whether they really want to do what they say that they want to do or if they want to keep it an issue i mean it's like the NRA is a prime example. If there weren't gun-grabbing leftists, the NRA wouldn't have a reason to exist. So the NRA actually wants gun-grabbers to exist because it gives them a reason to raise money. Right. It's a way to, it's an oppositional um, strengthening um, kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I would agree. I would agree that it's questionable whether certain Democrats want to address climate change because I think they, they're tied into the economic um, reality, which is the people that got them elected. And paid for their re-election. Um, don't, also, don't <laughs> they would rather continue their business models than to address climate change? So, yeah, the, it, it'll take uh, the collective will of everyone to to, to remedy this issue. And um, even in the climate portion of this, the bill that they're fighting about, there's there's a an expansion of the tax credit for EV cars only if they're union made. Only right, if they're union right. made. If it was about so, the environment. That only union made would not be in that bill, right? It, it's and, not uh, about the environment. It's about the political, uh, uh, you know, handout to the unions. Right. Well, that's that's what I've said. We're we'll 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 save the planet, but the right people have to get rich along the way, right. and we can't yeah. do it. Yeah. And and that's so messed up. That's such a. It's like we could we could. Uh, we could save grandma, but uh, we gotta make sure we make money in the process. No, what about saving grandma? Uh, well, you know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, it's saving grandma like, is the side effect. Not it the, is the, the side effect the exactly. It's it's crazy. But um, we're at the uh, the hour mark here. I want to um, transition here into some closeout thoughts. I got a couple for you guys. Um, I'll try to be brief since we're a little bit over time already. Um, there a couple of headlines. Um, well, there's one headline that struck me as odd, and that was that the Biden is being sued by Air Force officers who compare vi- the the vaccine rule to death sentences. So apparently the some Air Force officers um, don't want to get the vaccine. We all know people who don't want to get the vaccine, um, and uh, and and so they're suing the government, which is odd. You know, I agree. It's important that everyone consents to having a vaccine, and I support people's right to make their own choices. I don't want to coerce them into doing something against their will. However, 
the military, when you sign up for it, that's literally you give your consent to someone else to tell you what to do. That's like yeah. take, you're taking orders that you're, you're saying, I'm signing up to take any order. It might be the wrong order, but I still got to take it because that's part of the gig of being in the military. And so these guys, instead of just quitting, which would be the thing you do if you don't agree with an order, you just quit and be like, I'm done with this shit. They're like, no, we got to sue the, the president over these orders we don't agree with, which is um, it's odd. It's funny. Um, it's not gonna, it's not gonna do much. They're not gonna win this lawsuit, but uh, that's that's where we're at today, um, in the in the vaccine fight, the the fight of whether we should get vaccines or not. And the other thing that came across is on a more uplifting note. I hope um, I I read a, a great excerpt of a book about ending bias, and uh, and I want to read this uh, this excerpt. It's three paragraphs. I apologize for reading something word for word. But it's really good, and um, I'm reading the book now, and uh, it just made me think, and uh, here it goes. A recent study of nearly 700 college students found, in fact, that acknowledging differences affects perceptions of bias and may even help student achievement. The students assigned to an online chemistry, physics, or math class were presented with two teaching philosophies and a control. One set of students presented with a colorblind teaching philosophy heard audio welcome message in which the instructor explained that it was important for them to keep in mind the ways that they were similar to one another and that this would promote collaboration and learning. They also received a syllabus that further explained that the classroom was to be a place where students can flourish and that keeping similarities in mind would improve empathy and interactions. Another set of students assigned the multi multicultural teaching philosophy encountered a different welcome message asking them to keep in mind their differences. Their syllabus asserted that considering differences would foster better interactions. When presented with the acknowledging differences philosophy, students of color, including black, Latino, East Asian, South Asian, Native American, Middle Eastern, and Native Hawaiian students saw their instructor as less biased than, the, he had, than when he had advocated for focusing on similarities. They also performed better on a comprehension quiz than those in the colorblind group. White students, by contrast, saw the instructor as more biased when he acknowledged differences and least biased when he presented a colorblind philosophy. Uh, I, I read that whole thing out because I, to me, it's it's super interesting. We talk about how to acknowledge bias, how to remove bias from institutions, and uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard <laughs> a white guy say, "I'm colorblind. I don't see any any color," and uh, and this is good because I'm not biased. But actually, the, the, what the science shows um, and what uh, consensus process anarchists thought has shown um, historically is that actually when you, you come to the table with your differences, that's how you, you're able to collaborate and create, and create these kind of innovative synthesis of ideas and solutions that everyone kind of can get on board with. So it's actually leading with the differences that makes everyone feel welcome at the table. And so... Um, I've been trying to bring that uh, idea to the to the vaccine uh, controversy because uh, I get it. Uh, it's scary to get a needle. Um, my kids don't want to get a needle, uh, the jab. And uh, so I understand the hesitancy. And it is uh, very new. The process that brought it to market was super innovative. If you read about the mRNA um, vaccine protocol that uh, was used to create the Moderna and, and Pfizer vaccines. It's super cutting edge science. It's like the the edge of the edge of, of cutting edge science. And so I, I understand being scared about that. Uh, it is scary. And I understand just not wanting to do stuff because someone told you to do it. Um, I'm kind of like that sometimes too. Uh, but I think if we're going to get beyond uh, this stupid fight over vaccines, 
we have to bring those to the table and let you people understand here, hear each other's differences, where they're coming from, why they're scared or not scared, why they think you should do it or not do it. Um, I got the vaccine as soon as possible and uh, I'm glad I did. Um, but it's not for me. It's not, uh, I'm probably fine. I'm probably can take coronavirus in any variant form and be fine, but it's more for the rest of the people that can't, the people that are vulnerable kids and old people and, and alike. And, uh, and so it was more for my my fellow people than myself, and I think that is the 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 unifying argument is to bring our differences together and uh, understand why we're afraid or why we think it's a good idea, and then focus on what it does. It's not a personal choice, um, contrary to what some NBA players might tell you. It's not <laughs> not a personal choice. It's actually a public choice. It's a choice that affects everyone, uh, and, and if we can reframe it like that, I think it's easier to have a debate about our differences and maybe come to a, a working agreement. Uh, and that's my checkout thought. Ellie? Ryan, Justin, who, Andrea? who are the authors on that study? Oh, thank you. I forgot to, to mention that's, um, it was from a Jessica Nordell, um, a Jessica Nordell book called um, The End of Bias. And the study is, one second, I'm hitting the hyperlink. The authors of the study are Several. Um, I'm seeing Jessica J. Good and R. Grace Drake. It's called The Impact of Classroom Diversity Philosophies on the STEM Performance of Undergraduate Students of Color. And so if you read that particular excerpt, the excerpt is in The Atlantic this month. It's called Math is Personal. It's a great, great article about... Um, uh, well, you just have to read the article. I would check it out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. It's it's really in, well. I mean, I am. I mean, but like this is these are my colleagues. Like these people. This is my this is social psychology, really. So I actually thought it might have been by my dissertation advisor because she's been looking at uh, those kinds of framings and how it impacts people's behavior, and she's also been looking at identification with science. And so I was like, oh, is this an interesting mashup that she did? Um, so sitting there suspensefully wondering if a Kimberly Rios was going to be one of the <laughs> authors. Um, but no, it just sounds like, um, you know, I know who these people are reading and citing, you know, um, and uh, it's, it's cool to see them um, take the work to this place. I think it's useful. I think that it, it shows, it demonstrates the effect pretty nicely, but what it doesn't show is what kind of framing is healthy for everyone and works for white people. So right. they found a framing that works for students of color and not so much white people. And actually, um, my dissertation advisor has found that white people become more tolerant when they get to think of themselves as having an ethnicity and not this like ethnicitylessness of whiteness. So interesting. Being, yeah, being more in touch with like your specific European heritage and you know, not in some Nazi-esque way. I mean, you know, just being like, <laughs> you know, having that sense of your roots and a cultural identity, it brings out better behavior in white people. So it kind of implies that um, that the, the assimilation towards whiteness is actually sh uh, shedding a lot of meaning from people and putting them yeah. in a, a worse headspace. And one that that, that worse headspace brings out less tolerant and inclusive behaviors. And so I think that my dissertation advisor's work would be a great mashup with this study to kind of say, okay, what are the framings where we catch as many people as possible? We, you know, we, we, because it's really, I mean, I know why the students of color responded the way they did to that prompt because, like, they have a lot of academic experiences that are really shitty, and they notice, you know, instructors 
that feel different and they're hungry for it. They're ready for it. They're ready to feel safe with an, with, a, with a, any instructor, but certainly, you know, feel safe with white instructors if, if white instructors show themselves to like have a clue. Um, and yeah, I've done some teaching at the college level. And um, anyway, so I think it's like, it's like, yeah, that's pretty consistent with the need to feel valued and validated and seen. And it's an old social psych finding that people, they want to feel seen more than actually get complimented. Like, I mean, I, I, there's obviously per personality shapes, you know, how strong this effect is for any given individual. There is diversity, but you know, if you're not a very good basketball player and someone's like, yo, you are the best basketball player. You are the best. And they're like complimenting you. Like that's weird and awkward. Like you're like, you clearly <laughs> don't see me for who I am. That feels bad. And so like, compliments and positive feedback that feels way off base is really disturbing people really want to be seen for who they are and they want compliments too but they want them to be in line with their own self-perception and so you know students of color they want to be seen and they want to know that it's okay for them to be them in that space and it's so often not and um so anyways yeah that's cool stuff um i think it you know to be continued. I hope that their discussion section has some future directions, like what I suggested, because the obviously the, the work isn't done yet. Uh, there's still more to do, but I, I appreciate it. And I actually don't recognize those people's names. But since I've left traditional academia, you know, I am starting to become sort of, I don't know, I don't know people anymore. You know, I, I might meet them on Twitter. Um, but it's a little different for me now. So there, there's wonderful new people graduating from PhD programs all the time, and they are awesome. And I peek at their work, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so exciting to see this happening. Um, because you know, I, I kind of, I remember where the field was a couple of years ago, and it, you know, it wasn't at where it is now. So I think I'll just leave that as my checkout thought. Yeah, Ellie, do you think that this is the uh, the basis for a lot of the self segregation stuff that's going on? That that conservatives have been pointing out for about a decade and and now bill mars jumped on the bandwagon of that um that... well beverly tatum i think that's who wrote it wrote a book called why are the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and it's a great book and uh, basically yes um like you know <laughs> kids of color are perpetually uncomfortable because of how they're treated and how clueless everyone is around them if they're in a predominantly white space and it just is emotionally safer safer to go over to the uh you know black kid table at the cafeteria or whatever uh people you know people can't just go through their lives like doing stuff for other people they have to do stuff for themselves sometimes and a little bit of self-preservation is a no-brainer um and i think just more empathy about what it's like to really not fit in and not be and to not be treated like your way your mode is perfectly reasonable or fine and even worse it being erased like people just acting like there aren't any profound differences when it's, it feels like a kind of gaslighting and uh there's this one black writer i forgot who it was so crap i can't cite the person but they said when they're with white people they live in the fear of the racist trap door like out of nowhere you know you just never know the white person is just going to say something awful and not even realize it's awful and so sitting on the edge of your seat all the time like that is rough and some people are just going to opt out and they're going to go sit at the table at the cafeteria where they don't feel like shit and I, so yeah self-segregation is a, like a literal technical term for it that uh, is helpful, but it, it makes it seem like something it's not. And in reality, when you, you know, when these researchers talk to 
um, you know, white students and students of color, actually everybody does want cross racial friendships. They just want them to go well. And, the, and like the, ooh, I don't know that's gonna go well is like what holds people back. And so there's a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of opportunity for cross racial friendships with a sense of safety built. And so there's, there's tons of promise and potential. And this is definitely not something to be pessimistic about. I think it's something to be very optimistic about. So, so just in the last two minutes, I'll say this and you're going to laugh. You, you were just channeling Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you realize it or not. <laughs> well, Jordan Peterson is a psychologist and he, you know, I, he is, um, he is right about a lot and he's wrong about a lot too. And, <laughs> but the thing is what he and I, we read some of the same stuff. So clearly yeah. this is one domain in which he's actually done his homework. And I see Jordan Peterson as someone who is very useful for some young people who need to get their shit together. Like, uh, like as a life coach, I see his utility as at its best, especially with white dudes who are just so lost. And it's, I mean, mm -hmm. I know, you know, I, Ryan, you're probably technically Gen X and like Dustin, you're like, you, you might as well be Gen X, even though yeah. you're a millennial. And, but millennial men are often very lost. And I have seen Jordan Peterson actually help a few millennial men like straighten out their head, but he does say things, some things about gender that are not supported by science. He's sort of interpreting things a bit weird. So anyways, I have a nuanced opinion on him. I'm not one of those people who wants to strangle him, but I would like to sit down and talk to him about uh, a few things. You should do a, a mystery science theater uh, type thing, <laughs> crit critiquing in real time some of his videos, get them out there, get them circulated by your uh, peers so that he ends up seeing it eventually. And then we'll we'll have a, a Ellie versus Jordan uh, video someday. I'd love to get him. Idea. I'd love to get him on the podcast, guys. His stuff on uh, his, his stuff on existential philosophy is actually excellent. I think as I know, I, I mean, my, the, the probably the fastest way I know Tom Woods, who's a you know a, uh, Austrian economics guy, and he's good friends with him. I think so. That would be the the quickest two two degrees of separation that I would know how to do it. But my guess is that everybody and their brother plus Joe Rogan uh is tr constantly trying to get them get him to come on their show and there's lots of good existential psychologists so if you want an existential psych person like we got him you know it doesn't have to be jordan peterson there's a lot of really cool work going on out there um i am a huge i just love the meaning maintenance model if you guys ever want to go into that rabbit hole one of my book chapters was heavily inspired by it um there's just a lot of really interesting uh, research out there that we could talk about. So put a pin in the idea to like talk about existential psych more. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That now I'll actually fun. shut up. Well, Dustin, any, any checkout thoughts other than uh, shout out to Jordan Peterson? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> to the four people that are listening, uh, the, no, uh, ah, no, that's funny. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, oh, Ellie wanted to, have one agenda item that we have not gotten to and that was uh when we are going to do our uh uh inclusivity slash uh beer summit slash karaoke uh concept thing yeah is there, <laughs> is there like a okay i think sometimes we just gotta break it down <clears throat> to simpler parts to make it happen um thinking about 
locations and and dates that we actually think would be good for bringing in additional people and ideologically diverse people does anyone have any intuitions on how to you know commit to um a game plan that we think would yield turnout <laughs> like do people think... want to go out in october or in november like is this a good time october fest <laughs> which got mandance got canceled i think did it um, really I think so. Um, yeah, so maybe that actually means people will want to do things. Like they're like, you know, yeah. ah, I need something else. <laughs> well, my, I think it's a great idea. It's an idea I personally, I would struggle to attend and have fun because I, if you don't know this about me, I don't drink and I avoid bars like the plague. I really hate going to bars. Well, it's not even the, the even when I did drink, I didn't like going to bars. Uh, so it would be a, uh, it would feel like work, I think, if I went. But I would, lo I would love to be see it live streamed. I think it would be a lot of fun to see everyone else having fun. I just, um, it's it's it's, it's a combination between the um, bars are just dark and poor acoustic spaces, in my opinion. And um, I don't know if I'm getting old and cranky or what, but um, dang, do I like a nice acoustic place to uh, to talk to people in? Yeah. What about karaoke though? Does that change your like? Are you willing to make exceptions? For that kind of an activity uh if it was car pure karaoke without the drinking wait 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 i, I, I don't understand that concept at all <laughs> I, I i don't i can't do karaoke unless i got two in me so that, that's just the way it is um what one idea that i just thought of i, I could get uh it, and this might help get some of my side of the people into the room I could talk uh, Becker into letting me use his uh, meeting room that is off, that is on its own floor away from everybody else and have it kind of be like a private setting. If that would help, I don't know if it would or wouldn't, but uh, I could definitely get the space. And, but would that space, would, would it be like rent karaoke or would we not focus on karaoke <laughs> then in that space? Uh, I don't know. I, I, we could. It's got better <laughs> acoustics than the bar. I know that. <laughs> Um, other than that, you know, it, it would kind of be a matter of, uh, you know, kind of taking over the tap in tavern or something one night and seeing how it goes. I, I think that it's just, you know, we'll, we'll get Ryan some, uh, you know, cherry juice or something and, and uh, uh, he can, he can Ooh. have fun. Cherry juice. Now you're talking my language. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what cherry juice is, but it sounds intriguing good i drink it all the time it goes very well with vodka and brandy oh okay i see andrea in the chat suggesting some fun locations in other parts of the state and like i would be super into those but i think maybe for our first attempt keeping it in bizman helps us stumble through it and you know we didn't <laughs> Like I, what I'm worried about is we don't figure out how to get it right right away and so if we plan it in Fargo Minot, for example um and we don't know what we're doing yet we might kind of blow our wad but like if we can experiment in bizman a little and we can finally figure out the formula for success then i would be very interested in you know advancing this kind of an activity in other parts of the state and possibly even driving there to you know participate myself yeah you yeah, gotta, like, have, oh, yeah, you gotta sorry, have a go prototype you gotta have a first uh, crack at it and 
And I agree that Jenna would probably be interested in hosting on her property too. So um, she's been really, she's really eager. Like Jenna's interesting. She does go out of her way to go meet people around the political spectrum. And um, I think she really does dream of like a party that is very diverse in that way. And I think, but anyways, you know, we would obviously have to figure out dates that work from her. So um yeah, well, hey guys, I uh, sorry to we're not gonna be able to answer this today, or at least okay. I won't, because I gotta run. Okay. But um, but yeah, let's talk late more and uh, see you guys later. Sounds good. Yeah, well, thanks for listening to the No Name Podcast. You guys have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll talk soon. Thanks.